Dichter Hadina Pabuni, the Bocasto Mescla Brion Druth, Ostias Genev, Sauve Berryman. Hello and welcome everyone to the Mescla Brion Druth podcasts, hosted by me, Sauve Berryman. Mescla Brion Druth is a multi platform project using sculpture making and conversation to explore contemporary Cornish cultural identity. Through workshops, podcasts, a symposium and an exhibition, the project invites people to share their experiences of identity and Cornwall and their views on Cornish culture and its relationship to land, language, heritage, tourism, the Cornish diaspora and much, much more. These podcasts record conversations with guests whose research or lived experience touches on the project themes. The views, thoughts and opinions expressed are the speaker's own. All conversations are carried out with a spirit of generosity and openness, creating space for the discussions to twist and turn. And I'm very grateful to all who have taken part. In this fourth podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Stephanie Pratt, Dakota and Anglo-American art historian, and Jody Davey, a Cornish cultural worker, dancer and musician. Stephanie is a member of the Dakota Nation and became the first cultural ambassador for her tribal council at the Crow Creek Dakota Reservation in South Dakota, USA in 2015. She is a member of the Grandmother's Society based at Fort Thompson, South Dakota, which promotes the understanding and preservation of Dakota and Lakota culture and language. Her book, American Indians in British Art, 1700 to 1840, was a first study of its kind. And currently she's working on a second book, which will examine how native North Americans made images of those who came to their lands and how those newcomers imaged native North Americans in turn. Jaudi is a director of Lawenda Perrin with a young family dominated by powerful females growing up to understand and celebrate their own dual Breton Cornish heritage. Jaudi has recently led the commission of an exercise mapping Cornwall's intangible cultural heritage, identifying where support is needed for traditions and most importantly the communities that bear them to thrive. Ditha and welcome to Jaudi Davy and Dr Stephanie Pratt. Thank you both so much, Maraz, for joining me here for a another mescla podcast um if you would like to introduce yourselves briefly for our listeners that would be wonderful um steph would you oha petu ashte imachiape washichu stephanie pratt imachiape dakota iokbiwi mira wakantwa ka ehantawana himacha chante washte chiujapi I want to thank all all of you here and thank Sove and Jaudi and those involved with Mescla for inviting me to take part today. Welcome. 
Okay, well, Dith Da, Jaldi Ovi, Adewarth Riz Ruth in Kernow. Um, I'm Jaldi from Red Ruth in Cornwall, um, and I'm a director of the Loenda Perrin Festival. Could you tell us briefly what Loenda Perrin is, Jaldi? Yep, so um, we're an organisation which celebrates Cornish culture, um, promotes Cornish culture and its Celtic connections specifically, so those international links. And Steph, you're working on um, a book currently, aren't you? Yes, I, I in uh, collaboration with a co-author, an anthropologist, Dr. Max Karachi, and we're going to be looking at Native American counters, in other words, uh, images made when indigenous people in North America encountered newcomers and what the newcomers made of the native people they saw. So it's a book that looks both ways from the, through the encounter. And I just wanted to say I'm, I'm from the Dakota Nation um, and I was from band one and six of the Ocheti Shakawi. That's the bigger group of people that are the Dakota, Lakota, Nakota peoples. So that's that's my that's where I come from, my ancestry on my father's side. Thank you both for joining me. We I've w spoken with both of you about um, cultural identity and land and the what I'd framed as fractured cultures. And when I started talking about that, I wasn't sure if others identified with with that sort of phrase um and then um through the um, project in Plymouth the Mayflower 400 project I was able to be introduced to Steph and it seemed very apparent to me that some of what you were speaking about there was connected to this notion of fractured cultures um and cultures that are fractured by others yes I I think um do you want me to uh, sort of go into that or? Okay. Yeah, that would be wonderful. Well, I think that this idea came through discussions with elders in my community and that the, un the understanding that when in invasion happened and the invader people came to North America, that this set a sort of chain reaction event among all the peoples that caused uh, disruptions, dislocation, diaspora. And so um, even from the very beginning, uh, through contact with others and their diseases and other disruptions, the imbalances of power, this created what you could call a fracture zone. Some historians have talked about this, a kind of contact zone where things were not um, as they were before, so in pieces, and that those left were putting those pieces back together even as early as the 17th century and the, 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 the things that were happening on the ground in North America. So that's my sort of historical understanding of it. And um, it seems that, well... Something about perhaps putting pieces together is that then that opens up potential for overlaps and gaps where I think about a sort of broken piece of crockery and there might be a small aspect that can't be found. 
and is maybe found later yeah. and then kind of glued back in. Yeah, um, yeah I, I think that there were enough memories and enough continuity over, let's say, the last 300 years that have allowed many peoples to reclaim and to reassert their indigenous sovereignties, their indigenous histories and memories. And this is particularly important in the political climate of North America, US, United States, because you have to establish your, na your nation's presence in a certain area. So for some of the East Coast peoples, this was a real debate and they had to fight for their, what you call federal recognition of, the, of their tribes. And this is still going on even today, the, the fight for indigenous recognition. I wanted to ask you about the, um, thinking about the book that you're writing and this representation of um, an other within sort of um, arts and literature, painting and drawing, um, how that can dislocate somebody from their own culture and dislocate future generations from their own culture and history. Could you say any more about that, Steph? I think in the case of my research that there was an early conception of who the Indigenous Americans were, and this came partly from sort of a, um, what do you call it, um, thinking before. In other words, already European mentality, if you like, was, was forming around what is Europe. So already before Columbus sailed and others, there was a concept, who are Europeans? And so they're forming that at the same time as they're contacting people that they now want to see as other. And, and so I think they then construct what they were already looking for. <laughs> so here are people that have darker hair, they have a little darker skin, they are look unclothed to a Renaissance European because they have none of the fabulous hierarchical dressing that say an Elizabethan at court would, would understand. So they're naked according to the way they were described and living differently. And of course, there were so many legends about the people to the west of Europe. There were all these legends in, in European history, even going back, you know, very, very old legends about St. Brendan's Isle and all kinds of fantastic things. So they were looking for this. So I think what's overlaid onto the um, American Indian people are this kind of um, fantastical people that live forever, people that have free sex, people that don't have a church. And even by the time of Montesquieu, they're saying uh, sans loi, sans roi, and um, I can't remember the last one, <laughs> meaning without laws, without customs, without religion. You know, these people were just literally this kind of essential human being. So this leads into this fantastical structured image of who the American Indian people are. And then looking the other way, when a native person saw the first U Europeans, the ships were very different, their clothes were very different. And one of the first symbols that my people, the Dakota, adopted for, to stand for 
European people was a hat image. So that hat with a brim often appears on what they call winter counts, which are these histories of the Dakota people, and they have the date when the first trader was seen. And to symbolize that, they use this hat, you know. <laughs> so that's what they saw as different and sort of that encapsulate the whole of that experience in that hat. So it's just an, it's another way of looking at the encounter. That um, that idea of that pre-constructed fantastical otherness feels like is still very present and particularly played out in um, in industries such as tourism. From my perspective, there's an awful lot of um, fantastical creation of and other experience that could be accessed by um, the tourist. How do do either of you sort of relate tourism to part of that? Those sort of um, I don't know that othering or um, in being related at all to this fracturing. JD. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. And it it feels like a a kind of um, a, a narrative we don't really have control over or at least it was something that was set by the tourist board and now you know we have the internet and we have a little bit more control over it maybe but um I don't necessarily always recognize the Cornwall that gets sold <laughs> commercially if you like um well, I rarely recognize it um and yeah I mean I know and we, we've talked before about the sort of idea that Cornwall is somewhere you go sort of go back in time and to go back to something that we you know is sort of slightly purer version I don't know you know before all this immigration and, and whatever you know you like and obviously that's just just not the case at all and that's not my experience of of Cornwall and living here and so um and I think you know and obviously that's um with Cornwall being a very popular place to, to come on holiday and we know there's a massive problem with second home ownership and you know and that sort of fracturing there and that fracturing of communities which is there's been all sorts of fractured Cornish culture over hundreds of years but you know the the kind of current version of that is very much um the housing crisis I would say and we've recently been doing a bit of um commissioned a bit of research about mapping of intangible cultural heritage in Cornwall and um and what people need in terms of support, you know, what those communities need to support those traditions to, to flourish and continue. And the, the main thing really coming out was that the, those communities don't exist anymore because they've been fractured, if you like, because they have nowhere to live, they're moving away. Um, and I I moved away, I moved to London, I lived there for, for some time and I loved it and it was great, you know, and I've moved back. And I so I don't, I'm not saying there's any... I think people should go and experience the world but the idea that you can't live there because you can't afford to live there is something slightly different and um yeah and just how you know how do we support those communities to keep those traditions and, and what makes you know what makes a place is, is really important 
Well, I, th I think this happened in the United States, more in the southwest area where the Pueblo and the Hopi people, the Zuni and others live, that it was it was created as a tourist attraction and people would go to be sold or to buy items that were made specifically for the tourist trade in that area. But it's also this notion of the land, the land giving you something that you're, you've lost so that um, you travel to these places where you get a reconnection. So I think it's people that are searching for that rootedness that a person from an indigenous person, a person born in a location, has that connection either through history, memory, or just existential living, you know, living in a site for a long time that makes, gives you that connection. But these people coming from, a, from a elsewhere don't seem to have that with their own location. And so they're searching for that. At least that's the way I, I would see that. But, you know, I'm one of those people too <laughs> because I'm not from Devon and I've come here, but I now see so much more after 30 years. And I think it, it takes almost that long to have a deep relationship with somewhere because you have to see everything changing and moving and yeah, and, and forming that relationship. That's interesting there about, um, well, about the time that it takes um, and that searching for a reconnection perhaps if that's not present where an individual sort of calls home or usually resides um, and does I mean most tourist excursions are, are, are fairly sort of short in time um, and but it's interesting to think about that from the perspective of wanting to reconnect somehow with land or create a space of time or um yeah and i there's something there about um like we were t we were chatting a bit earlier around like um climate change and learning to live with climate change and indigenous approaches to land and um we were talking about place thought steph could you just sort of uh, introduce that idea a moment please yes this is something i've run across recently in the work of vanessa watts and others uh, an idea that when we talk about nature in our, let's say in our more academic, um, usual Euro European Western thinking, it's us versus nature or us in control of nature or that we are essentially different entities. And I think when we think of place thought, we're, we're giving back to the land and the, and the non-human beings an agency, a, a voice and a, an activity within that dynamic. So it's not just us v nature, it's nature and us. 
in an active um, compliance <laughs> with each other so that it's it's one of yeah, the players that shall it we really say, does in, in our ways that we want to be in the world in the ways we think and indigenous people think much more like that as landscape as an active agent within the histories of our societies and cultures um and it leads me to think about other extraction industries such as mining and um a point where the land becomes a resource to be exploited really um rather than um a, a, another sort of s symbiotic living <laughs> being that is is supporting and um like you're in a relationship of reciprocity rather than a relationship of use and yes and Cornish um, identity is really bound up currently or aspects of it are really bound up with mining um there's so and that's partly political Jody can you tell us anything about that sort of the importance of mining to Cornish kind of uh, independence and minority status? Yeah, I, I suppose um, it's something I'd grown up with and oh, mining, yes, that's a, that's a very Cornish thing. That's very much part of our history. And I think um, and it, it's so much part of our landscape as well. I mean, when you, you know, you come home and and it's everywhere, you know, the mine shafts are very much part of the, the horizon. You cannot avoid it. They're everywhere. Um, you know, it's one of the only places I think Cornwall where you could have a piece of, of history like that right next to a supermarket, you know, and <laughs> they sort of... But um, I, if I'm on it, I suppose other... It, it's difficult to connect with on a personal level because I say, you know, my family don't come from a, a mining background. Um you know, personally, I suppose, you know, buying a house in Cornwall, you always have to do surveys to check <laughs> that there aren't mine shafts under, you know, we're, we're very familiar with radon in Cornwall, it doesn't bother us too much, I mean, they sort of, you know, things that you, you get used to that might put other people off, legitimately, but um, it is, you know, and, and I don't know, my school emblem probably had a, a mine shaft on it, but beyond that, actually, it's it's quite difficult to connect with or you know on a contemporary level about what that means today and again and there is a little bit in there around um it's looking back and you know and how do we look forward um around sort of Cornish identity and that idea you know it's, it's something we're very famous for. we were at the heart of the industrial revolution at, at one point in time but actually again it, for something that is currently destroying our planet um you know the, the start of, of the end almost if you like and so um it's it's a really complicated relationship, isn't it? And I, it and it's trying to find you know what ways that, that that might become something positive and not extractive in the future that that's going to be so important for the next generation. Yeah, I mean, I I I hear that, Jaudi, and I think that we have to see also that human organizations and and societies 
are not able to maintain a balance all the time. That I, I think that would include Indigenous people, that there are times when the balance tips over and we've done too much extraction. So maybe it's part of the just recognizing when the limit has been reached that there we've taken too much out of the earth and certainly with oil extraction. But, you know, there may be an element in which tin mining is, is, is needed um, for certain materials and that if Cornwall is the place where this happens, that it can be monitored and kept in some sort of balance, you know, between the destruction that it might cause, but also the benefits that come from having tin as a, as a material. You know, so I think it's like we're learning about how to keep these things in balance. And indigenous people have a lot of wisdom about that. You know, that to listen to, listening to elders and listening to their perspectives about, well, back in the day we did it this way, or we knew when it was too much mining, or we knew when it was too much extraction, we could see that, you know, and, and kind of trusting that relationship again with the earth and with with our land and our landscape. And there is there's something around um I'm going slightly off topic, but around the um the language as well and, and one of the things with the Cornish language that's quite interesting is what it can tell you about the, the relationship with with the environment, um with the land and um and how that sort of changed over time so uh, there's a, a place called Rose near Goonhaven which um, it comes from the Cornish word Ros for a circle which is where there's the um, the playing place of Plen and Gwarry which is where the, you know the medieval amphitheatre and actually if it had been overgrown, I mean, you wouldn't have known it was there. It, you know, sort of understanding through the language. Okay, there's something from this that you know you're, you're that's been preserved through the language. And I was reflecting that I I had no idea. So I've always referred to the dunes as Tawans, which is the the Cornish word for a dune. I did. I was about 25 before I realised that the rest of the world didn't call them Tawans. You know, <laughs> my relationship with it. You know, is oh right. You know, that's a okay. You know, the Tawans, the Tawans. Um, so there's something sort of kept within language as well, you know, as for me that's really important about understanding landscape and place. I had the same experience with uh, <laughs> language. I also, I, I think I was almost 40 when I realised teasy was dialect. <laughs> no one <laughs> Teasy to be a bit moody usually goes with being tired. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> I was wondering if then there's, and I have read about this, like the possibilities, if we think about this fracturing and like a distancing through industry perhaps with our relationships with land, um, is there the possibility of learning from Indigenous peoples about this relationship and paying attention to the land and when enough extraction has happened and now it's time to stop is there the possibility for us to perhaps relearn say in somewhere like Cornwall those relationships yeah I I think it it means pointing the finger at oneself I suppose and saying what are my descendants going to think about me when uh, they're it comes their turn to take over 
and make decisions and become the next generation. And we do have a notion called the seven generations in my people and Dakota. And the seven generations stands for where you are in relation to those behind you and those in front of you. So you carry with you only, I think, two or three generations. When you make a decision, you keep those people in mind, but then you also keep in mind the four coming. So when you make a decision, you hold all those, all those people together and saying, what is this going to mean if I d decide to extract more petrol or extract or you know burn more fuel you know it's 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 something that the indigenous have really highlighted to me anyway in my reading and how good an ancestor will you be that's that's a question a book asked uh, recently which i just picked up so um yeah that's a question i asked myself and um it's something you can do right away. You can say right away, I'm going to make changes. And um, no matter where you are on the planet, you can you can think about those things. And um, we think about um, like our ancestors then as well in relation to that and the history of Cornish people, the Cornish diaspora, Cornish miners travelling around the world, being part of that um, extraction in other lands, a part of that fracturing of cultures and that colonial programme. And um, I've, I always feel very strongly that there's an, a real importance to make reparations for that. Um, but also right here in the place, which I think chimes with what you're saying about how good an ancestor will I be? What can I do here and now to, um, uh, yeah, honour, acknowledge those pasts and honour... Um, those peoples affected but also honour this moment now and the opportunity we have here now to do something different yes that's that's the message I think that what that question raises yeah mm -hmm. do you see that um sort of being played out or part of um the current activities within like Cornish cultural um, heritage circles or Cornish cultural circles, Jodie? Um, to an extent, I think, but there's, I think there's probably more to be explored there in the future. We sort of think of the Cornwall, it's the diaspora and, you know, aren't we, aren't we connected across the world and isn't that wonderful, but, you know, and, and yes, but also um, there is some work to be done exploring why those international connections are there and, you know, and what they've, they've meant um, for Indigenous people, you know, in those places across the world and, um, yeah, th I think there's, there's more to be done there ex exploring that and, and confronting some of it. Definitely. And perhaps um, language is part is part of that as well, like with the reconnection to our language and perhaps the more we use Canuit Cornish, um, does that remind us about those relationships and the impact the diaspora had? Yeah, I think so. It's um, 
that's the variety is the spice of life, isn't it? And I think, you know, what what, what boring roles it would be if everybody <laughs> spoke English. And it's just a, a fantastic um, to have that variety there. And I think it probably makes you more tolerant as well, you know, potentially as a, as a people or, you know, if you do um, have a... a, a wider dialogue you know and, and, and more languages to express yourself through I, I certainly think um for me having been lucky enough to grow up in, and that wasn't through my schooling unfortunately <laughs> the system by virtue of my family and my parents you know really um immersed in Cornish culture is I'd like to think has made me um actually very open and welcoming of other cultures, very accepting and tolerant, you know, just because I feel quite safe in my own identity. And um, so I think possibly more of that generally in Cornwall might might help, you know, with uh, with those difficult conversations <laughs> um, about tolerance more widely. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. You know, the identity is not something you can necessarily see on people's faces or in their physique. It's in your blood and your bones and your memories and your knowledge. And um, so speaking the language is just so important. I think it's absolutely the reconnect, the place of reconnection to be able to name things and start to tell the stories of the place. You know, those place thoughts are still there in Cornwall. So it's that is that reclaiming and reasserting of the sovereignty of the people there that has been so important for North American indigenous people and, and probably South American. That kind of renaming of mountains now, the renaming rivers after indigenous names. And this really is such a marvelous um, decision to do that. It's happening in Wales, isn't it? I think they're talking about um, going back to a Welsh name for, for Snowden, which is, yeah, beautiful, really interesting and good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I welcome that very much, yeah. It's something that feels like it's been um, relatively slow in Cornwall, but we are seeing sort of rolling out of bilingual place names and road names and increasingly bilingual signage for public buildings and in public spaces I think as that confidence grows it signals to those here and others like this is this is what this place is and we can have confidence in that it also I think on an individual level helps to give one a bit more confidence to kind of claim that space as well and say, I am Cornish and I'm going to use these words now. Yeah, I, th I think that's been quite an interesting... Um, uh, yeah, the, the sort of... The use of the Cornish language has almost in itself been a little bit divisive and, that you know, how Cornish are you? Well, can you speak Cornish? Can You know, it sort of becomes this level and slightly... Well, very unhealthy, if you ask me, kind of marker of, of how Cornish or not a person is. It's, it's divisive, and um, and I think you know that's reflecting on Mescla as a project. You know, where that's really interesting because actually Cornishness is is a whole host of different things, of which one is the language. You know, and um, and we can. I'd like to see a place where we can all sign up to that. You know, and sort of understand what it means in its wider um, sort of 
you know, again, there are those people that feel very Cornish but have no connection to language whatsoever, and you know, the, the um, it, it's all part of the mix, I think, and um, yeah, stepping away from something that you know that that makes it inclusive rather than divisive, I think, is is really important as well. Well, I, I think there was almost a determined effort to repress uh, indigenous languages. I mean, there, there certainly was in North America. It was a it was almost a governmental policy to take children away from their parents and make them into what you might call U.S. citizens or take the Indian and save the man was the great slogan that the Indian boarding schools said. And I, I don't know how it was here, but I heard recently a Welsh person telling me about them, their family being struck, I mean, physically, um, what do they call it? capital punishment, you know, hurt because they spoke their language in, in school. And that was within modern history, you know, that was going on. So I think this was a determined effort to, um, I don't know, almost manufacture everybody to be the same, like you say, you know, like, we'll all be good consumers or we'll all be compliant some way, you know. And I, I think the language is such a defiance, you know, because it's saying, I'm not having your ideas and your concepts. I, I want my own formed from w the way I was taught by my family, my ancestors, my surroundings, you know. Um, that is a very political act to do such a thing. So I think it's fantastic. <laughs> I wanted to touch on in this around language and people's comfort around um, words that are unfamiliar to them or perhaps um, phrases or ways of speaking or being that are unfamiliar and um, is there something within this about um, people wanting to not feel uncomfortable like is that somewhere within I don't want to say that's necessarily somewhere within all colonialism, but some actions around um, suppression or repression. We're only going to speak this because then we all understand it, which doesn't actually open up the conversation of how comfortable or how much people understand something or how comfortable people feel um, speaking that language and of course doesn't take into account any sort of anything around um neurodivergence or disability or I feel like it's quite an, an English thing I may say but it there are plenty of countries around the world that um you know uh, bilingual trilingual goodness you know where it's really really common to speak you know six eight different languages and that's normal and i think um you know there are words that you use to express something that don't exist in a certain language that you need to you know express yourself and it, it comes out in a different way so i think um it's that's just bonkers isn't it the idea that we should all be speaking <laughs> well all that it's divisive not to i think you know it's um what a brilliant way of, of learning about the world there are things you know feelings you, you know like i say you can't express in in english that you can in other languages that we miss out on and um well it's like the towns you know i mean that, that sort of relationship with the land you know and, and all of that is um i think it's 
yeah, it's uh, well, it's probably that's unfair, just in English. Yeah, but those countries that are sort of generally <laughs> monolingual in a way, where you know the idea of speaking lots of different languages is so foreign, um, but actually perfectly normal in many places in the world. Yes, you're right, Jaudi. Um, bilingual, trilingual is very common, and. Um, say a place like the Far East to to see hear people jumping from the different, you know, Cambodian and into Vietnamese and into Thai dialects and just being very and they're not necessarily friends, you know, they've had a history of of um, aggression between those countries, but it's a comfortableness about who you are perhaps that allows you to accept. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Yeah, about English. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good question. Is it? Is it then somehow? Is it connected to that colonial, that colonialism, that colonial project? Well, I can't help thinking that historically, at least, um, you know, that seriously, that it was an administrative nightmare. I can imagine to have so many overseas territories, so much to administer and, and maintain and to have a kind of consistency about your documentation and who could read the treaties. Uh, we know that a lot of treaties were not understood by the indigenous people to whom they were addressed, that they were forced to sign. Often one person only was required to sign a treaty and they, the whole group were not asked, you know, or didn't understand that what they were agreeing to or that the people that were signing the treaty or creating the treaty, usually they were British or English or then United States or Canadian with my people, um, didn't care whether you could understand it and used those documents as means to acquire more land and more land. But land is the big question. I mean, land is, they have a big movement called Land Back in the United States in Canada, which is trying to acquire indigenous land back that is not being used or is not being developed. Um, and recently, there, I think in California, somebody was able to acquire a piece of land back for the tribal groups there. Um, so it's sort of the land is very important to how one can feel indigenous again, you know, to reclaim that sense. Yeah, that makes, um, that makes a well, it makes a lot of sense, obviously, because of that physical space and that space to stand in a place that, um, like I certainly feel, standing on the land of West Cornwall, where I hail from, gives me a different sort of strength or understanding of myself um, than any other any other piece of land um, and I can s understand something of the of a space it certainly with here gives me a space to yeah to understand myself differently perhaps more fully. I think that that's really interesting as well around um, not just sort of land I suppose but, but buildings for me I, um, with my fundraising hat on and I spend a lot of time raising money to buy 
buildings back for the local communities um, and, and a lot of them in Cornwall are um, old Wesleyan chapels or Methodist chapels and of course Methodism being a really strong part of um, Cornwall's religious identity or you know um, heritage and, and identity and um, and you see a lot of chapels tend to very lovely homes <laughs> you know that have clearly had a lot of money spent on them but also that again that sense of sort of loss in the community these spaces particularly in really rural communities where the, you know they could they could gather together and say um i'm working on three projects at the moment <laughs> all bringing back you know community buildings that were community buildings um either you know churches or libraries um that have fallen into disrepair or you know were at risk of of being developed and turned into goodness knows what flats pubs um that have you know that, being saved by the local community and it's not quite the same as land but it's that sort of sense of a, a community space you know something that, that that doesn't belong to anyone privately that anyone can access um and particularly tied up in that sort of heritage of a, a sense of place and do you think um i'm then also thinking about those who like those who come to Cornwall, choose to come to a place um, who don't necessarily have um, a, an ancestral relationship to it, but also not a personal history relationship to it. So maybe haven't grown up or, but then feel very much a connection with a place. Many people, um, choose make a choice to move to Cornwall and to make their lives in Cornwall and to invest in community here and speak of a, a really strong sense of belonging and feeling as though they were coming home um and um yeah I'm interested in you of your thoughts on that sort of um, choice to connect to an identity. Who wants to go? <laughs> you go ahead first, Jody. <laughs> um, I suppose, again, it sort of comes back to that connection with land, doesn't it? And um, everyone, whether they grew up here or, or chose to move to Cornwall, it is a, you know... Um, be careful what I say, you know, it's not disconnected, it's very well connected, but it's a sparsely populated rural area, it's difficult to move around, um, you know, I mean, when I, I was living in London and I, I made the move back home uh, just over 10 years ago and I went to the, the popular pub on a Friday night, where in London you'd be lucky to get a seat anywhere at all, you know, on a Friday night and in Cornwall there were five people there and three of them were me and my mates, I'm thinking, what on earth have I done, you know, come back. <laughs> So there is, but there is that sort of, um, you know, and here I am still quite happy, but it's um, that, that, you know, you are, it's a way of life almost, you know, by virtue of the of the landscape and, and how you live. So we have that shared already, you know, regardless of then your background and the knowledge of the culture. Um, and so, yeah, I suppose, you know, it sort of develops from there, but it, it is... Um, how you kind of connect people into those communities then you know and and how people contribute to help supporting the indigenous culture if you like to sort of flourish um is, is interesting <laughs> how we help facilitate that i suppose 
Yeah, I mean, I, I agree that it's, um, it's not maybe so much the person, but the place that tells you um, how to be a good ancestor. And, but it, thinking about Indigenous North America, that um, we had a lot of interaction among our different groups, our different nations. We had wars, we had captives, and we had what's called adoption processes. So if someone was taken, say, through war, more captivity, they could become a member of another group, another tribe, and they would be adopted officially into that group and would be given maybe even a new name and um, had to learn the new, the new ways to be in that place and to be a good person in the society. So it was kind of, in a way, it was kind of a controlled society and saying that these are the requirements here in this land, in this place, you you know you acknowledge these ancestors and and the and honor these practices so i think for modern people maybe they need to see that as well that they're kind of adopted cornish and you know that if the cornish people are kind enough to let to allow them to come in that they then acknowledge and honor those languages those practices and those places that are important and have deep cultural and intangible heritage in, in that area. And that intangible heritage, um, I think is, I mean, that's something that's a really hot topic for us in Cornwall currently. And Jaudi's been undertaking a lot of research in that area. Um, what I find really fascinating about the notion of that intangible cultural heritage is it doesn't necessarily mean um yeah a uh, St Peter's flag on the car perhaps it might mean a way of speaking or a bit of dialect or how you prefer your chips um <laughs> can you <laughs> your cream tea yeah. No. <laughs> yeah oh yeah there's certainly the jam cream <laughs> debate. <laughs> Jadi, could you tell us a bit about um, that identification of intangible cultural heritage? Yeah, so like you say, it, it seems to be the, the latest thing, isn't it, that everybody's discussing, but I suppose something that um, we didn't necessarily call it that, but that Loanda Perrin has been dealing with for the last 40 years, you know, in, in terms of um, celebrating and promoting and, and connecting to other intangible cultural heritage cultures. Um, and it, it, I mean, it, it, you know, it, by, it, it is by virtue of the fact that you know, it's intangible, it is animated by the communities that that own it you know and that it, it has to have people in order to live effectively it, you know you can't put it in a box and or if you do it get logs in a museum it's constantly evolving you know and there's all sorts of really interesting hot debates over how much intervention you have you know around because we are dealing with fragments and you know it, um you know the language itself we don't know how it sounded because we don't have any recordings of it you know you, there are some um liberties if you like that you have to take to to sort of um recapture some of that heritage but it's still important for um understanding a place and community cohesion and it's as a um particularly when it's fragmented it's it's quite delicate you know and, and how we sort of bring that back to life but it has to be owned by those communities i think and um which sort of comes full circle back to the issue of you know if those communities start to be fragmented by 
um, lack of access to housing and, and having to move away for reasons that aren't, you know, exciting ones about expanding your career, but just you can't afford to live there anymore, you know, which um, is more negative. It's, um, it has a massive impact and it causes a really bad feeling, you know, and, and we start sort of, it's not just fragmented cultures, it's fragmented communities, you know, across Cornwall, but across, you know, the UK, actually. Um, and so, yes, I've gone off topic a little bit there, but in terms of intangible heritage, yeah, it is, you know, it, it is, um, it, it has to be lived and breathed. I think that's what's really important. About and it. can it be something, um, is it recognised as something that might even be um, a way of being or terms of phrase or yeah so that was that was quite interesting coming out of the results of the mapping exercise that we did so we did a very a light touch and um, we were looking at where does Loenda Perry go in the future it's like many organisations post-Covid having a chance to sort of reflect and think okay what do we do in the future and and something actually we didn't know and we needed to do a bit of research around what what was going on out there in communities in the sector and how we can support that um, meaningfully going forward. So we commissioned a quite a light touch mapping exercise which was working out what was going on out there, what groups, what individuals were doing intangible cultural heritage um, and, and what were frustrating their ambitions in terms of taking it forward and so we uh, we did dictate what what we meant by intangible cultural heritage and one of the things that came out of it was actually we we missed that kind of just feeling <laughs> of what it is and again you know even more intangible than than a pasty i don't know <laughs> what is it what does it you know what does it feel like to be cornish um and and that's something yeah that we sort of didn't it's sort of really um idiosyncratic things so i don't know uh someone was saying that it was a, a mebian kerno conference and it was the only place they could think of where a political party held a a raffle at the end you know that was something kind of <laughs> um eccentrically cornish about that you know is that but how how do you capture that that you know and that there were i think there were more questions that came out of that piece of research than answers which was exactly what we hoped for in a way and we were expecting but yeah absolutely capture it how do you capture a a feeling <laughs> just a way of being is is um challenge accepted <laughs> well i can i can give you an example of a way that um, a friend of mine and i helped to recapture i guess it could be an intangible cultural heritage um She's a woman that lives in Morton Hampstead. She's an artist called Melinda Schwackhofer, but she's also Muscogee Creek. So she's a Native American like me. But what we did was we decided to be taught how to tan buckskin as our ancestors would have done in North America. But we found someone on Dartmoor to tell us or to show us. So in that process of actually taking a hide from an animal who'd given its life we were going to create something very useful and something beautiful out of the the, the death of that animal so we were scraping that and in the in that process we felt we found muscles that we kind of already knew about that our ancestors had which was this action of scraping and it's all women that do this work in, in indigenous so we were talking and laughing and saying this is we're we're in our ancestors' footsteps, you know, and we're, we're in that place. But it was nothing about the land so much as the activity of doing that. So I think it's, 
it's something it is very nuanced and but the feeling was what touched us that we felt indigenous as we were doing this hide tanning on Dartmoor so <laughs> it can come in the most unexpected places is what I'm saying and that um I think a thing that seems to come across to me um more and more is that um there there's there's no specific expectation of what that feeling needs to be or um for instance perhaps it's useful the mapping exercises are really valuable but for individuals it's also not a requirement to sort of pathologize one's identity or um or need to provide that as evidence of sort of to authenticate oneself yeah. for for the benefit of others yes exactly and that is something that um i feel that there is a, a sort of fair bit of um particularly um that comes across um with Cornishness within Cornwall at present. And it does feel as though that is connected to the things you've been mentioning, Jodie, around like the housing crisis and tiers of society we now have and how cultures, uh, communities are being fractured also. Um, something around who deserves to live in a place or to sort of live in the villages by the sea for yeah instance. absolutely and you know and there's there's interesting um well you know the, uh, what sort of padstow may day has um and i'm not i don't declare to be an authority on this at all but um that it you know it's, it's changed and developed so much over the years and i think there's definitely a feeling of um of people kind of reclaiming the town you know from the outside looking in it, it, it's people coming in you know during people who live there that now live up on the estates on the outskirts of Padstow because all of the lovely cottages you see in the town have now got you know for rent signs on them um over the holidays you know and it's it's that real sense of coming together and I'm not sure 50 years ago that was it would have had the same you know that's evolved as a piece of sort of intangible heritage it's about reclaiming in a, in a sense it's just evolved around um the, the world as it as it is now and, and perhaps even more so who know you know what, what the impact of the housing crisis is is having but um yeah it, it, it touches everything i think you know the, those kind of social issues um and it's reflected back in in that that heritage as it evolves i think yeah, it would be um, it would be really positive to see that all unpack a bit over the coming years, and um, maybe in some of this uh, research into intangible culture, culture, and um, re sort of celebration of those mun mundane identifiers of cultural identity um, uh, might enc encourage or give confidence to, to many to kind of celebrate that culture, that living culture. I often slip into that, that using the term heritage because it's so sort of with us and um, 
all over the place, but um, I'm trying to uh, train myself to say it's li living culture. <laughs> and I think that's it's interesting when you look at, you know, sort of um, complicated words like authenticity and, you know, and what uh, it within intangible living cultural heritage, you know, it's... Um, the point is you you can't pin it down <laughs> and actually if you're looking well you know you how you define Cornish well it you know next week it, <laughs> it might be this and at the moment it's that but it's actually what the communities say it is you know that that live with it and live there in a way isn't it so yeah living <laughs> I was just going to add that I, I do love that phrase living culture because I think it's so true that things are not static and they never were put in a box and held. They were always lived and, and experienced and therefore changed by the particular community involved and and very happy to change, you know, to adapt. So that's a really important point. I was just going to add that. <laughs> It feels like there's something in this again that is around just a general, a general sort of societal shift or approach shift the way we view things. So it doesn't need to be, um, or certainly oughtn't to be viewed in a kind of linear. It is this, and then it is this. <laughs> sort of way and this is the definition so we all know in fact those those boundaries and those definitions are always shifting and changing and um a far more I don't even know what form would describe it but um I, I made a project a few years ago where I spoke about um, supple and subtle boundaries and it feels that this is part of that conversation around identity and fact. It's always shifting and changing and sometimes those boundaries become more blurred or more defined than at others for individuals as well as for communities. Yeah, very well said. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both so much. You're both fascinating with so much, um, so much to say and so much to share. And I'm very appreciative. Um, Maraz? Wopida, wopida. Thank you. <laughs> thanks, Jaudi, and thanks, Sobe. It's great. <laughs> Maraz, thank you. <laughs> Maraz, I guess Goslo is. Thank you for listening. Further episodes of the Mescla Bruyon Druis podcast can be found on my website, sovayberryman.co.uk. That's S-O-V-A-Y-B-E-R-R-I-M-A-N.co.uk where you'll also find guest biographies and a resource page of links to further reading on the topics discussed. If you feel inspired to join the Mescla conversation about contemporary Cornish cultural identity, please get in touch with me, Sove Berryman, via my website or social media. You'll find Mescla Bruyon Druis on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. The Mescla Bruyon Druis podcast and project 
has been made possible due to a wealth of in-kind help and support from many parties, including the Wender Perrin Festival, Gorseth Kernow, Cornwall Council's Cornish Language Office, Coethysan Yeath Canuick, Crescent Kernow, Cornwall Neighbourhoods for Change and Falmouth University Falmouth Campus. The project has been supported using public funding by the National Lottery through Arts Council England and further funding has been gratefully received from Historic England via Redreath Unlimited. Agas Terman, Agas Grellas. Thank you for your time. See you later.